Thanks, Lauren, for uh, leading us with the rest of the group there. Everybody plays a part. Nate's on the buttons, John's on the buttons. Everybody does their thing to help us uh, come together and to worship and praise our God through song and music. The kids are heading out, but I don't think they're in the rooms today. They'll be out probably under the tennis shelter. The cricket final's on in case you've just driven past them out of all extra cars. Oh, I thought they were all coming to church this morning, but no, they've got something else they're doing, which is all good. Um, I'll just remind you of a couple of things that Doug did announce to encourage you. Our next week's baptismal service, I would encourage as many as who possibly can come uh, next Saturday. Part of um, baptism is, um, or a significant part of baptism, is this public uh, profession of faith that now I'm following Jesus Christ. And uh, it'd be great if we could come out and encourage those ones who are going through the waters of baptism to um, make that a real occasion for them as they actually make that sort of public declaration, public statement that I'm actually a follower of Jesus and I want to do this in a very public way by proclaiming that by being obedient to him and following Christ through the waters of baptism. So please, if you're able to make it next Saturday, uh, that would be really, really good and really helpful and encouraging. If you could just let Jen know so she can help uh, organise on the catering side of things and uh, that would be terrific. And also just those care information cards, as Doug said. We have got a few spares still here. I'm not sure. I don't think everybody's filled one out. I've got a bit of a checklist at home we're working through. Not everybody has. We really need you to do that. We just need to have some good follow-up contact information. And sometimes things change. Your email might change from last year if you change workplace or anything like that. So it's just helpful for us to be able to follow that through. So if you haven't got a card, please, uh, we haven't left you out. You've just somehow escaped the net for the last couple of weeks. But we want to give you one so you can fill it out and we can um, keep a track of that, which would be really, really helpful as well. Okay, who's watched the TV show Super Nanny? Neville's nodding his head there. No, he hasn't watched it. Well, Super Nanny, what does she do? Well, she does a lot of things if, if you happen to watch it. I've only watched little snippets of it here and there. But what she does, she comes into a family facing really big issues of kids who've run amok. Normally they're like, three and four year old kids that have run amok and they've wrapped their parents around their little finger and they're actually controlling the family and not the parents controlling the family. She comes amongst these sort of snotty nosed little brats who are just downright rebels and they've taken over the family and they've changed things to their favour and the parents just seem like they can't do anything about it. Well, Super Nanny comes in and what has she got to do? She's got to work through some pretty big issues to try and turn that family right back around again and uh, expose what's been going wrong and then try and lead them into the right direction of actually how to establish law and order and to raise these uh, precious little snotty-nosed brats at those times. So you've got to deal with big issues. You've got to expose some stuff that's going wrong and then help them to find the right path. Well, today we want to see Jesus, not as the super nanny, but who comes and deals with some big issues here in John chapter 2, needs to expose what's going on and then lead them ultimately to the, uh, the way, the truth and the life that is found in him. Jesus today will deal with some big issues here in John chapter 2. So please join with me as we open up our Bibles. Let's read all of John 2 together. Once I pull off my watch. Starting at uh, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, 
each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Father, thank you. Thank you for John chapter 2. Lord, we ask and pray now that um, your Holy Spirit would come and just uh, bring light into this chapter, bring uh, application into this chapter. Help us to see what John is uh, writing this for. Help us to see why you've inspired John to write this. And I pray in this that we will see uh, an increasing vision of Jesus Christ and that through this our love for him and our faith in him would grow. Help us with that now, I pray, Holy Spirit, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we pick up John um, here after a lengthy introduction. As the, the first chapter of Sony was gathering his disciples. And what John does now is he takes us into a period of ministry in the life of Jesus. This is a, a, a biography or the, or the account of the life of Jesus Christ as seen by John and written possibly 60 years after uh, Jesus has left the earth after the resurrection from the grave. And John is now moving uh, into the, uh, the ministry life of Jesus. Actually, what Jesus does here for these next three years as he walks around uh, Palestine, uh, teaching, preaching, and uh, performing many miracles and miraculous acts. Remembering John has a specific purpose in writing this book. We saw that a couple of weeks back. He wants us to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the purpose why John is writing this. He wants us to put our trust, our faith, or our belief in Christ alone. He's trying to draw us to the attention of Jesus Christ and to put our trust, faith and belief in Christ alone. This is what John's doing here as he, as he goes uh, through this book, as he recounts these situations and circumstances here in the life of Christ. So with this aim, uh, John is helping us to look at nothing else other than Christ to build our lives upon. Anything else other than Christ that we try and build our lives upon will be sinking sand. 
it will crash down beneath us if we try and build our life on anything other than Christ. So today John will show us how Jesus deals with a couple of really big issues and exposes them. And what he's going to deal with here is dead religion and dead worship. John's specifically going to take us here to show us dead religion and dead worship. The first part of this chapter has us going to Cana uh, for a wedding. Uh, Jesus' earthly mother Mary is there, the disciples invited, and he's also gone along as well. Uh, Jesus was no party pooper. Jesus loved to enjoy life just as anybody in the village or the community would have enjoyed life. So he's gone along to the wedding there and to uh, take part in that. Weddings are big things in the life of a family and probably in the life of a village back then in Palestine as well. And certainly for the groom's family, it's really, really important that there's plenty of food and drink to keep all the guests happy and catered for. Weddings are big occasions and grand occasions. And if you run out of food or uh, things to supply the guests with, it would be probably highly embarrassing for them. Mary comes to Jesus and tells him just that. Hey, they've run out of wine. They've run out of drink uh, for the celebration of this marriage. And as I read through there before, you may have thought, was Jesus' reply to Mary a bit blunt? Like, woman, what, that, what has that got to do with me? You might think, well, Jesus, that's, have you got out of the wrong side of bed this morning to say something like that? Sometimes you read the Bible and think, what's, what's going on there with that? It's actually not cold or blunt, what Jesus has done. It's quite common in the Hebrew language to actually refer to uh, someone like that as a woman. You might say for us in today's language, if I was down the street and a lady had her car with a flat tire on the road, well, I could say, lady, would you like some help with that car? It's really the same term. So don't be confused here thinking Jesus is cold and blunt and he says, woman, it's not my time yet. Not at all. It's just a common way that Hebrew would actually uh, address um, women. We say today, lady, can I help you? Jesus tells the servants at the wedding to grab the purification jars and have them filled to the top with water. Take them over there and fill them right up. The guys go and do that. They bring them to the MC of the wedding and he replies, hang on, what's going on here? This is the best wine I've ever tasted. You're supposed to do the, wor- the, the um, best wine first and when everybody's sort of you know, used to that taste, you might bring out some poorer wine later on. But hang on, you brought the best wine out now. I mean, the MC had no idea where this wine had come from either. He didn't know that they, uh, Jesus had told those servants to go and fill up with water, but the servants did know that. Somehow the water has miraculously turned into top shelf, first choice wine there and then on the spot. So it's now not water, but it's wine. Now, obviously we know this, it doesn't happen on its own. You don't go and put some, uh, you know, a jug of water into a into a barrel and all of a sudden it just pops out wine out the other end. If that was how it could always happen, you wouldn't have to grow grapes, would you? Out there in the plains, they could just fill up with water and it comes into wine just like that. It doesn't happen like that. And simply you wouldn't put it away for a vintage of you know 50 years and all of a sudden miraculously it's turned into wine after 50 years of sitting in this barrel when it was first just water. John talks about this, this incident here in verse 11 and says this about it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. That's what it is. No one can do that. No one can put water into a barrel or a jar and out comes wine. John calls it a sign. It's pointing towards something. Now, just to read that, first glance, it does sound pretty amazing. Who does that? Nobody. That would make probably the first story in Channel 9 News at night. Hang on, this guy is turning water into wine. This guy is something else. 
It would certainly make uh, headlines and uh, you would say, this guy has power like no other. He should be listened to. On the first glance, that's exactly what it does do. It says there's something significant about this, uh, about this Jesus. But also, I've got to th- as I think about John, I think there's something more significant that he's trying to tell us other than just this wine is turned into water. That's significant, but I think there's something else here that John would have us to see and to believe as he writes this gospel account. There's a sign here that Jesus is showing us through this miracle. Jesus is doing something here, uh, as it were, below the surface of what we, what we can see on the outside to try and point us towards Christ. And particularly here, John has written this particular event to help us believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Nothing is insignificant in the Bible. Every word is inspired, every event is put there by the Holy Spirit to convince us of Christ. So here's what I think Jesus wants us to see through the eyes of John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he writes this down. For the Greek or the Jewish readers of of John's day... There's tremendous significance in the idea of the purification stone jars. When they would read the purification stone jars, there is part of John's recounting of this story, their, their eyes would open up and their ears would prick up a little bit. All of a sudden they're saying, oh, there's something happened here. These jars weren't ordinary jars. They were jars for the purification rites of cleansing and washing of hands. So before and after meals, they would have to go through a hand-washing ritual. This was part of the Jewish religion. Before a meal, they would get this water out of these special jars, wash their hands, and then go eat their meal. After the meal was finished, they would take some water again out of the purification jars, and they would wash their hands again at the end of the meal. If they went down the street to the market to buy some groceries or food or whatever, they would come home and they would wash their hands after they handled the food. They were washing their hands numbers and numbers of time throughout the day. And this was all done in strict adherence for the law of Moses for um, being ceremonially unclean in the Jewish religion. It was to do with uncleanness, this whole idea of washing hands. And it was particularly critical for the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were huge on this, absolutely huge on this. They actually tackled Jesus at one stage and saying his disciples are unclean. Jesus, your disciples are unclean. They don't even wash their hands before they have a meal. And they go down the street and they buy some vegetables or some rice or whatever they might get or flour and they don't wash their hands. This became a big thing for the Pharisees here as they looked at this, this traditional, this ceremonial uh, washing of hands. So why do they wash their hands? What was all that about? What was this cleansing about? The whole sense of purification rites in washing hands was a symbolic action. It was symbolising something. And what it symbolised is our uncleanness or our sinfulness. So the whole sense of this washing of hands was meant to um, convey to us a sense of cleansing or being purified uh, from our uncleanness. God requires holiness from us. Our sin has made us unclean. We need to be cleansed. This idea of washing of hands and was beginning to symbolise uh, this uncleanness that we had and it was cleansing us. So for the Jew or the Gentile who's reading this, they would be somewhat gobsmacked. They would somewhat stop in their tracks when they see, hang on, there was wine in those purification jars. You put something unclean like wine into the purification jars. 
That is a violation. You can't do that. Jesus, why did you put wine in these purification jars? These are special jars. These are really intricately tied into our ceremonial type religion. These are really special jars. You can't put wine in these jars. You're making these jars unclean. See, the whole problem here with this idea of them locking into this idea of uncleanness and specialness in these jars is a massive problem for them because they were massively big on law keeping in Jesus' day. Their religion was all based around a whole set of series of laws. Their whole life was built upon an entire system of ceremonially washing hands and doing this and doing that, following all these procedures and processes to get things right. And what had happened in that day is they totally lost sight of the symbolism of what all that washing of hands was or what all the ceremonies were for and what was being demonstrated through that. And what they began to do was major on the whole system itself and not what it was symbolising or representing, not what it was actually pointing to or alluding to. They actually focused the whole thing on their tradition, on their ceremonies and on their following their processes and uh, procedures in all the right places. So in other words, then what they began to do was that whole focus shifted to doing all these right things in the right way, and then somehow they believed that would gain their right standing before God. It was now all about following these laws to the letter, following these washing of hands to the letter, following these procedures and keeping special jars in special places. Their whole focus now became that. So here Jesus comes in, to this wedding at Cana, subtly in one sense, because he just sees a bunch of jars over there, but also in a very other sense, clearly shows that this whole system of cleansing was never going to save anybody. You've, you've uh, inflated this whole system of cleansing and washing of hands way out of proportion. So Jesus takes these costly purification jars and then makes them unclean with wine. He's actually saying something through that. And John's wanting to communicate that to us as well. Jesus is, in, a, in effect, dismantling this dependence on laws and procedures and ceremonies that they have begun to build their lives upon and putting their faith or their hope and trust in that. And Jesus is now coming to say, hey, now that I am here, I will be the ultimate cleansing of your souls through my blood that will be spilled out at the cross. You can wash your hands all you want. You can wash your hands a hundred times a day if you want. You can go to Mount Franklin and get pure spring water straight out of the mountain. You can wash your hands with that if you want. That will not make one guilty soul clean. Only Jesus Christ can do that. The moment, as they were then, heading down that path, they are actually going into dead religion. Religion is like a system of works. He's a, he's a religious person. He's very much into a, some sort of a works system. And Jesus is dismantling here a religion of dead works. Subtly on one sense, he just picks some jars, but very pointedly on another sense, because he picks some very special jars that he would make unclean for this occasion. Here's two results if you go down the path of a works-based right standing before God or trying to think you can live a religious life to save you. First result of doing good works or trying to earn our way to God, following a system of works, produces pride. It really, really does. The moment we think we can earn our way to somewhere or some position in God, it does produce pride. We become full of ourselves. 
we look back at ourselves and think, how good am I? Look at the way I've ordered my life and I've got so much discipline in place. I go to church regularly, I help out on the rosters, I pay my bills on time, I make sure I'm on time wherever I go, I actually help out in the community wherever I can, and I'm so good. Pride begins to just sow its seed in our mind. We begin to look back on ourselves and just think, how good am I that I can tick the list and put all these things in place? All good things to do, don't ever stop doing any of those things, but what happens is in our mind we begin to flick over to a pride mentality. We begin to tally up all the ticks and we think, yeah, I'm not such a bad bloke after all. Something actually rises up within us. Something just begins to stir as we maybe go down that path of of, um, doing these good things. And what it is actually says, uh, I'm a good person, I'm doing okay. Pride has crept in and it's slowly convincing me that God will accept me because that's the sort of person I am. I'm a good person and I can do all these things and I've earned some sort of sense of acceptance with God. Now I know what I'm like. I can easily fall into that path myself, easily fall into that trap myself. Yeah, if I can just pray for 10 more minutes, I'll pray for an hour. God will think that's pretty good actually. You know, if I can just have a bit more self-discipline on TV and just not watch a few more shows, I reckon God will be pretty pumped about me doing that. It's so easy in my own mind just to see pride, just just click over in my mind, just begin to tally the things up, like I'm trying to build my score here. That's what happens when we go down this path of works. It's a result that comes in. And for my own self, I can see how easily pride begins to just sink its roots into my thinking. That's one result. Another result that is that some sort of law-keeping or trying to gain God's approval through obedience, another result is it actually produces despair or feeling totally useless. It's the opposite to pride. It's a bit like it doesn't matter how much I try and do the right thing, I just continually feel guilty because I cannot do enough good things to please God. That's another result if we try to go down that path of um, getting or building up a score or adding up a list. I try and do, I try and do, I try and do, and I try and do, and I just keep failing. I'm trying to actually you know, make this standard, but I just can't get there. Every time I do something, I feel like I've just failed again. I'm not good enough. It very quickly runs through our mind. I can't do this. I'm, actually, I'm not worthy of being um, Christ's disciple. I'm not worthy of being saved because I can never please God if we go down the path of trying to please God by the tick list and adding up all these scoring points of all these good things I do. Some of us can feel utterly despaired. We can feel hopeless. It's totally strength sapping. It does lead us to despair and guilt if we try and live a life before Christ in a way of earning something or doing something to receive something. That's another result. Dead religion, Jesus came to expose that. This follows on now to the next instance here in chapter 2 and this is dead worship. This is dead worship. Jesus takes us, uh, John takes us to further into the life of Jesus and he takes us now to the festivals which were a very large part of the Jewish way of life. And uh, here we have a Passover festival happening in Jerusalem that uh, is a big deal. Uh, the festivals were there for celebration and remembrance of all that God had done for the Israelites. And particularly the Passover, this remembers and celebrates God's incredible rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. So everybody's gathered in Jerusalem and they're all there to uh, remember this again and to think on that. And hey, this is a big public occasion. 
Jesus also is in Jerusalem and he goes down to the temple uh, for prayer and for worship and to truly, as it were, remember the Passover festival uh, himself. But what does he discover when he goes down to the temple there? We saw it in the second part of that chapter. Jesus goes to the temple and he discovers the temple's become a shopping centre. He goes down there and he sees it's like a, uh, a pop-up stall site. He goes down and he sees there's all manner of business taking place and it would be particularly in the outer courts of the temple. There's sheep and there's oxen, there's pigeons, there's money changers, there's all types of things here. It's a place of business. It's a place of trade. It's a place where you can go down and you can do a deal. How does Jesus react to this when he discovers this in God's house, in God's temple? Well, we see this reaction in verse 15, 16. And making a whip of cords. Doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's not quite gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? That's not quite perhaps the, the nursery, not nursery, but the, the, the song we might sing um, on, in Sunday school. Sometimes Jesus isn't quite what we imagine he is. Sometimes Jesus is really unsettling. And he has a very specific unsettling here in this temple. Jesus is full with, filled with zeal. A zeal for the reverence of who God is. What's happened? Why is Jesus reacting like this? What's taken place? The temple is meant to be a place of prayer and worship, a place where they would present their sacrifices, symbolising uh, the sinfulness in their lives, and these sacrifices symbolised the atoning for these, uh, their sin. A place where they would bring their sacrifices and do this worship before God. It was meant to be a place of reverence and respect, and it was meant to be a place of praise for God for his abundant goodness and grace in their lives. This is what the temple was for. The temple represented the presence of God in a very significant way for the Jews. But what had it become? Something very different. The ruling priests and the ruling Pharisees of the, of the day had other ideas about temple worship and temple prayer. What have they done? They've set up a business within the temple and they're selling people animals for sacrifice. So the whole idea of that is this. People would come and have to bring a sacrifice as part of their Jewish um, ceremonial practices. But some people travel, who knows, hundreds of kilometres. So they can't carry sheep and oxen and all this stuff with them. So, okay, what can we do? We can buy some when we get there and we can present them. Now, that's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's good. That's okay. But the trouble is, what had happened is the Pharisees had seen here an opportunity to make money. As I read this, I was quite surprised actually. They owned all these businesses within the temple. And what they did was grab sheep, oxen, pigeons, whatever, and they charged absorbent, outrageous prices for it. Forced them into poverty to, to buy these sacrifices to present on this particular day. So you can come and worship God in the temple, but you need to buy the pigeons and the sheep and the oxen off us, and they'll be like triple the price of normal. Because it's the Passover festival, everybody's going to come. So they had come and they had set up this money-making racket scheme for themselves to supply their lavish lifestyle here and do it right within the temple grounds. That is dead worship. That is dead worship. 
It is not real worship to God that the Pharisees had engaged themselves into and were setting up the temple for. There was no heartfelt sincerity whatsoever in this worship before God. And in no way, shape or form did that worship bring any glory to God when they set up their own businesses like pop-up shops and let's just sell these things for triple the price and we'll put all the money back in their pockets so we can build a grand new whatever, kibbutz somewhere out there in Israel and uh, let's just make ourselves a wealthy, wealthy lifestyle. Their worship was dead worship. It became a man-made system that lacked sincerity and wasn't from the heart. A heart humble before God. It was a heart from totally looking to line their own pockets. And what did that do? This type of worship only served to elevate or lift themselves up in their lifestyle and not the God who gave them the very breath that they breathed. When worship is like this, from an insincere heart that doesn't have the glory of God at the centre or doesn't have the magnificence of God at the very heart of it, we really are treading on dangerous ground. We really are treading on dangerous ground. Firstly, we are probably deceiving ourselves, thinking that we are worshipping God, even though our motivation is to make much of ourselves in this worship. The Pharisees are probably thinking they're worshipping God. Well, in a false way, they're trying to promote that. But their whole motivation was to actually make themselves look good and line their own pockets with the finances they could make. How would that look today? Perhaps I could be worshipping God and a ministry of feeding the homeless, a great ministry, a great act of worship. But it's not difficult to actually slide into a mentality of looking for prominence while I'm feeding the homeless. It's really easy for that to take place. When I'm purchasing the food and supplies and loading up the trail, I'm hoping somebody may notice me and what I'm doing. I'm hoping to actually, someone says, oh, what are you doing that for? Oh, I'm going to feed the homeless. Or when I'm down the street and I'm actually a few homeless might come to the trailer and they, um, they line up for some food out of the corner of my eye. I'm sort of looking to make sure there's, you know, maybe there's someone down there noticing what I'm doing. Very easily that motivation can slip in and that mentality can slip in. It's an act of worship, but really what is perhaps creeping in behind it now is um, I hope I'm getting seen doing this. I'm hoping I'm getting prominence out of this. Becomes dead worship. Now, it's a great thing to carry out the ministry of feeding the homeless, but it must come from a humble heart must come from a humble heart that is looking to glorify God through that worship and not myself. We can easily deceive ourselves and our hearts will deceive us because the Bible tells our heart is deceptively wicked above all things. It can easily deceive us and lead us down its path of dead worship. Secondly, dead worship is not looked kindly upon by God whatsoever. Whatsoever. Jesus demonstrates this with his zeal to come into the house and, as it were, clean it out, expose it, show it for what it really is. Jesus sees right through all of the motives. He knew exactly what was going on in the minds of those Pharisees as they were trying to set up this worship practice within that house. And he sees our motives too. He sees my motives. He sees exactly what's going on. And if we treat God like that, it's a total affront to him. Total affront. We don't like to think about that too much, but God sees all of that. And anything that points worship towards us and not towards God, God will judge it. God will judge it. Just like Jesus judged those ones there on that particular day. Now that's not meant to frighten us away from worship. Not at all. 
I should, we should be if we're able to um, resource ourselves to feed the homeless and to do ministry like that. It's a great thing to do. But we should make sure our, our, our motivation in that act of worship is a humble, sincere act of uh, worship that is done to glorify God and glorify ourselves and not direct any praise towards us at all. What happens here? Jesus, the Pharisees then approach Jesus, surprisingly low-key, because he's done something fairly significant in the temple. He's actually turned everything over and he's caused quite a stir. You would probably think they'd be all over him like a rash and just want to drive him to the brow of the hill like they did earlier on and want to push him out over the hill and kill him. But they're a little bit low-key in a sense, because maybe they're, just, they're not quite sure how to take this Jesus. He's pretty significant. So I ask him, what sign do you show for doing these things, Jesus? What, do you, what sign do you show that you can come in here and, as it were, upset the whole apple cart and turn everything upside down? Now, Jesus says something to them really confusing for them. He says in verse 19, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Absolutely no idea what Jesus was talking about. All they can think of is bricks and mortar. Hang on, 46 years it took to build this temple and you're going to do it in three days? No way. Again, we have to see here, why is John recording this? Why is John writing this down? What's the significance here of John putting uh, this situation or circumstance in the life of Christ for us today, 2,000 years ago, uh, later, to see? There's something significant or there's something really symbolic here that John wants us to see in what Jesus is talking about here. Don't forget, John is writing for us to believe in Jesus. John is writing to us to put our trust alone in Christ. Again, the Jew or the Gentile reading this would have known about the temple and its central figure in the worship of God. As they read this, they would see the significance here of the temple. The Jews absolutely prided themselves over the temple. It was like the pinnacle of their whole system of religion. Come look at my temple. We love our temple. We live for our temple. Our God resides in our temple. This is our place of worship. Look at our temple. The temple was central. The temple was significant in the life of Jewish religion. But what John is showing us here then is how Jesus is bringing in a total deconstruction of this dead worship of God. Jesus is going to totally deconstruct this whole idea of what the Jews had resorted to in making the temple so central and then actually making it dead worship. Jesus is going to deconstruct all of that and put in place true worship. True worship. So Jesus is saying here when he talks about the temple as he responds to these Pharisees, he's referring to himself. You will now come through me to worship the living God. This is the temple that Jesus is talking about. I am the temple. I am the true temple. I am the place where you enter to worship the living God. They didn't get it back then and probably the disciples didn't really get it either. They got it after the event when the Holy Spirit actually gave them more enlightenment of what Jesus was talking about. And what Jesus is saying here, it's not so much a place of worship because Jesus is not here now in the flesh like he was back then 2,000 years ago. So Jesus is not talking so much a place of worship as in a physical building, but it's through a living relationship with Jesus that we now have this total free entry to come and to worship God. Not in this sort of bricks and mortar building. It's great that we can come and worship God here on a Sunday morning corporately, but that's not where it's restricted to. Not at all. 
It's through this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ that we enter into this absolutely true worship anywhere we like, whenever we like. And that's exactly what Jesus is now referring to here, talking about this temple. I'm bringing in a whole new order, a whole new temple, which will now be entered through me to worship God in spirit and in truth. And in the letter to the Hebrews, this is written out really clearly for us in a couple of verses here in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that's what Jesus is doing, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through the death of Christ and his payment for our sins, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus is our high priest. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is only combining there the whole idea of washing and this entry into worship. True worship, true religion. Yes, me, this temple, this true temple you will destroy, as Jesus responded to the Pharisees. You will destroy it. You will kill me. But in three days, this temple will rise again. And then through me in this living, personal relationship, you'll be able to enter and to worship the living God anytime you like, wherever you like. And that temple will never be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what he's beginning to usher in um, then and there on the spot. It's a brand new covenant. It's a brand new agreement of the gospel of grace. Uh, bring us into true, true worship. Really relevant for us today. Really, really relevant. All of us can easily fall into dead religious lifestyle. It's so, so easy. It becomes a, a system of just making an appearance at church occasionally, just turning up every now and again to make sure my language is relatively clean, doing enough good deeds so that I can feel confident about myself and that God will really notice what I'm doing. I'll even put some money in the offering and I form this sort of mental checklist that I'm building a score for myself. And what happens then, we begin to place our hope in this lifestyle, this lifestyle of religion, this lifestyle of just doing the right things. And that somehow God will see all those good things, he'll recognise it, and then he will save me. It's dead religion. The heart's not in it. It's actually just a man-centred effort to try and get there. And this dead religion easily leads to dead worship. Because there is no heartfelt change within us, Our visible acts of worship really then or easily become a me-centred or me-glorifying action where I become the focus. And these motivations here in this dead worship begin to inflate myself other than bring glory to God. But Jesus spectacularly and supernaturally brings in a new kingdom that will liberate us from this dead religion and this dead worship. Jesus becomes my perfection. I don't have to earn a thing to be accepted by God. Jesus has done that for me. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law, done everything I um, should have done but could never have done. Jesus has done that for me and he freely gives me his righteousness uh, in the great exchange at our conversion. So I'm no longer in this bondage of not feeling I haven't done enough to earn God's tick of approval in my life. Jesus has done that for me and his grace makes me worthy. And now from this position of acceptance Um, in God, through Jesus, I desire to follow God's law as a response of worship to him. I now want to live obediently to him. This becomes worship that is true. 
true worship. It's coming out of a changed heart. Jesus has made this way open to me. I can approach God the Father. And now I can do this as a response of what Jesus has done for me. And when I do this, I don't do this to make much of myself. I do this to make much of what Christ has done for me. So now my heart is centered on or motivated in lifting up God and lifting up Christ and not myself. This is the true worship that God then leads us into, that Jesus makes possible for us. And this is where John is pointing us today. These are not insignificant stories. These aren't things here that, aren't put, that are put in place for really no reason at all. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what he's doing. And sometimes it's not easily seen what's perhaps being communicated through that. Significant miracle. But there's something else here that Jesus wanted to teach beyond the miracle and uh, teach about himself as he shows us what he's bringing in, a brand new kingdom, a glorious kingdom that is ruled by him and is filled with grace. A kingdom that establishes truth and hope in our lives through what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today for, uh, for John 2. Thank you, Lord, today for coming to this world and, uh, as it were, uh, doing the hard stuff, exposing uh, the dead works in our lives, exposing dead religion, exposing dead worship. Jesus, that must have been uh, tense things for you to do, to, to walk in amongst that whole temple that whole system there of buying and selling and trading and exchanging. All those Pharisees, all those priests looking around and counting the money in their fingers as they're seeing the money roll in as people are buying animal sacrifices. But you came on a mission. And your mission was to set us free from dead worship and dead religion. Your mission was ultimately to offer yourself so that we could come through this uh, this curtain, this veil of flesh, through your death on the cross so that we could enter freely before God because of your righteousness given to us. And this mission took very serious acts, serious acts of, of uh, high drama, as it were, at times. God, we are so thankful that Jesus came. And Jesus, we are so thankful that you were willing to put yourself out like that. You were willing to be rejected ultimately by that generation so that we could be saved. Today, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to uh, analyse and examine our own hearts. And to see, Lord, there are men- no mental checklist. There are no tick lists we need to sort of tick off to earn our acceptance before you. God, I pray today you'll help us to see that Jesus has made that way possible for us and that would be a liberating uh, truth to our hearts and our minds. And that Lord, you would inspire us to true worship in and around Christ and what he's done for us. Lord, thank you for that today. And we ask and pray, Holy Spirit, apply that to our hearts and help us to uh, grow in Christ through that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben's going to come and lead us around the communion table and I've forgotten who's on for handing out the elements. Um, Elliot, do you want to... Sam? Sam and Elliot. Go, mate. Grab that mic there, John. significant that we come to the communion table when we look at the wedding in Cana because one of the things that John 
is trying to highlight for us in this passage is that this is a prelude, a foretaste of another wedding feast, one that John also happens to tell us about, about 26, no, no, about 23 books later in Revelations. It's not, it's not a coincidence that Jesus' first act is at a wedding and is an overabundance of goodness. He takes these stone purification jars, the sign of being purified and cleansed, and fills them with the best things, to the running over practically. It's not lost on the people in Cana, the wonderful and overabundant provision of the Lord in this case. And because John says that it's a sign, again, it's pointing to things, and it's one sign is pointing towards his fulfillment on the cross. But he's also looking deeper at that final, that final wedding, when God's full blessing will be manifest, when his overabundance of purity and blessing will come, when his jars will never cease to overfill and overrun. There's a real theme in John around this idea of, of wedding and party and, and, uh, and that fulfillment there. And so um, as we come to communion, what is communion? Well, at one level, it's a reminder for us of that future wedding feast. On the time you know, when Jesus is initiating communion in the upper room just before his death, and he's handing out the elements. He says, I will not drink again of the grape until the day that we drink it together again at the great wedding feast at the end of time. So we can see that this idea of the wedding and the wine brings us right to the communion table. And there's one other little element here that we need to, to think about in regards to communion. And that's when Jesus' mother asks and says, look, Jesus, there's no more wine. And Jesus gives her a very mild rebuke. He says, well, what does this have to do with me? And it sounds a bit odd to our ears, but the, the general gist of what's being said here is asking Mary to be submissive even to Christ himself that there is no greater authority, no greater power, no greater person who can tell what Jesus what to do except God the Father. And so even Jesus' very own mother has to take a step down and submit herself under the authority of Jesus. And that's what he's sort of reminding Mary and us at that moment, that as we come to the communion table in the great celebration of the wedding feast, the great expectation of Christ's death and resurrection and ultimate fulfillment in heaven, we also must remember our place in relation to Christ. We are not above him. We must submit and come under his authority, just like his own mother. So as we come to the communion table, we take the wafer as a reminder of Christ's death in his body, and we take the cup 
the representative wine, as the promise of a new covenant, a promise of his death and resurrection, and ultimately of our resurrection. So please take these elements with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the plan that you and your Son developed, the plan of salvation for us. As we come around this communion table and as we share in the bread and the wine, we celebrate and remember your death and resurrection, Jesus. We remember the glory that is promised through partaking in your suffering, through the partaking of your life. We look forward to the day that we all, as one body, will gather around your magnificent wedding table and share in your glory, in your love, in your wonder. Where sin has ceased, and tears have long gone, and nothing but fulfilled and mag- uh, magnificent glory and joy is before us. Jesus, we long for that day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Um, Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll have the worship team come back up and just let us in uh, one song to, to close. Uh, if anybody would like some prayer, I would like to catch up with you. Again, always happy to make myself available to, uh, to see after the service. So uh, please feel free to join us for some coffee and cake afterwards as well. Thanks. All right, please stand and sing us. Join with us in singing our God.